Welcome back, folks. Today, I am talking about something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time, and that is Midnight Mass. When I first started this podcast, well, when it was a blog before it was a podcast, um, I was really interested in exploring like religion and spirituality and horror, and I kind of started off on that foot. I have a few blogs specifically about those two topics. Um, But then, you know, the podcast kind of grew organically and split off into more of just a generic horror podcast, which is fine. Um, But I've been thinking about making a return to that original plan. And um, this was, of course, way before Midnight Mass existed. But when Midnight Mass came out and I loved it so much, I thought, you know, this might be a great jumping off point to have some of these conversations. I grew up in church, and I also loved horror as a kid, Uh, and those two things don't really seem to have much in common. Those two things seem very much at odds, but uh, I gave a lot of thought to it, probably in my 20s, and I thought, you know, uh, religion and horror do have a lot of things that sort of intersect, and um, I'll talk about that a little bit more uh, later, but the very first blog I ever wrote was called Fear and Faith. And it spoke to my personal kind of journey to figure out why both of those things were important to me. And so I'll link that in the show notes if you want to see the kind of genesis of this whole project. Um, It's very kind of different in tone, I think, than where I have ended up. But uh, it's always good to remember where you started, uh, where you came from. 
So before I jump into the content of Midnight Mass, there are a few things that I want to talk about. First of all, it's just kind of a brief overview of religion and culture. And religion is clearly an important part of human culture. It shows up in most people groups across the world. It often shares common elements. Um, It seems to serve as a vital piece of the human experience. And obviously not for every single person, but certainly for humanity as a whole. So I think what religion does is it helps us kind of make sense of the world. It helps us maintain a sense of wonder, and it gives us something to believe in when there is nothing else. And probably the most basic idea that religion and human morality share is the concept of good and evil. It drives the structure, the guidelines, and the behavior of most religious people. And you could argue that the contrast of good and evil is also the basis of horror. Um, Evil as a concept, of course, manifests in a few different ways. There is external evil, which is like man versus man or man versus a monster. Um, And then there's internal evil, which is like a man versus himself. And almost every horror story can be broken down into one of those two categories. And this is why I think religion and horror, while they may seem to kind of be at odds, actually work quite well together. And because of my somewhat unique background with both of these things, um, I've always been fascinated and found real beauty in the marriage of the two when it comes to telling an important or a powerful story. So I'm going to dig into my personal experience and background a little bit more here because I do think it's very important, um, not only for my relationship to Midnight Mass, but for the horror genre and religion in general. So I was raised in the Christian tradition, specifically in the South, in the Assembly of God denomination. If you are not familiar, um, Assembly of God is almost charismatic, not quite, organization. Um, It's only just like a couple steps removed from the snake handlers. Uh, And I'm sure that in the deep remote country, there probably were or are Assembly of God churches that do handle snakes. Um, And so the churches that I grew up in encouraged real spiritual encounters and outward displays of worship. It was common to hear people shouting their prayers, speaking in tongues, in addition to the laying on of hands for prayer and the use of anointing oils, which is kind of like uh, what you see in Midnight Mass when they do the ashes to ashes with the cross on their head, Um, except it would just be the oil, no ashes. Um, And also, we basically believed that we were the only true Christians. And what I mean by that is um, maybe you weren't explicitly told, but it was definitely understood that like our denomination had it right. Our interpretation was the correct interpretation and other denominations didn't really have it right. Now they might still make it to heaven, but we were superior. We were the true, the best Christians. So because of my background with a, you know, outward, uh, flamboyant, charismatic expression of worship, I've always been open to and comfortable with the idea of the supernatural 
because the churches I attended really normalized the supernatural and expected it. And I grew up in church because of my parents. My mom is a pastor's kid. Um, But I also grew up with horror, again, because of my mom. Um, She always loved scary stuff, and she passed that love down to me. And so my familiarity with the supernatural is possibly one of the reasons why I have always loved horror. Um, Horror approaches the world quite often through the lens of the supernatural. And it invites us to suspend our disbelief so it can show us a truth about the world we live in. So my current relationship with faith has gone through a complicated process. Um, There are many reasons why, as I said, Midnight Mass resonates with me very personally, partly because I have sort of departed from the system of organized Christianity. Um, A lot of people I know that have gone down this road of really examining what they believe have left the church entirely, have left faith entirely, much like Riley in the show. You know, he says, I really tried. I tried this. I tried this. I tried this. And I just don't believe any of it. And um, I know people like that. For me personally, though, I had enough uh, healthy examples and good examples in my life that taught me to question things in church, Um, especially when it came to people, people's ideas and what people had to say about the rules and uh, the structures of religion. And um, I think that's been important to me because it taught me that um, just because you question something or you have a problem with something in your church doesn't mean you've lost your faith, doesn't mean you're not a believer. You're allowed to doubt, you're allowed to ask questions, you're allowed to investigate, and you're allowed to call out when that's not right. I don't agree with that. Um, And so I now, um, my faith has stayed intact. I'm still a practicing Christian. Um, But I don't go to, you know, a building with hundreds or thousands of people and sit in the same seat and listen to the same five songs and a message and go home every week. Um, I attend just a small group of people. We keep it simple. There are no programs. There's no collection of offering. There's no there's no system to keep running. And so, as I said, I've been through kind of a long process of searching, criticizing, questioning, deciding where I land because it's what I believe, not because it's what someone told me to believe, which is an important step uh, and very, very relevant to Midnight Mass. I also want to say I am not a theologian. Um, Anything that I present in this podcast is from my personal experience Uh, There are people who study religion from a very educational standpoint who could give you deeper meanings for everything. As I said, mine's personal experience. Now, I have been in church my whole life, um, so that's uh, 30-something years. (laughs) Um, So I have a lot of personal experience. I've observed a lot, but I am not uh, an expert in religion. Also, religion and horror, to me, mostly means Christian. Um, I know that that is 
not all the religion there is in horror, but that is a, a big bulk of it, especially in the West, of course. Um, also, my own experience, as I said, it's Southern, it's Pentecostal. So it's very far removed from Catholicism. And I do not claim to understand all the nuances and rituals of that system, even though they are familiar, it is the same religion. And a lot of religion and horror is Catholic, I think probably due to the exorcist. That was sort of the catalyst that started it all. Um, so I'm saying all that to just say that this is a conversation, not a thesis. And I think one of the reasons why religion has uh, continued to be important in horror, not just to me, but in general to the genre, is because one of the most successful and influential horror films of all time is a religious film. And of course, I'm talking about The Exorcist, which I just mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, and The Exorcist has never been my favorite horror movie, but there is no denying its significance, not only to the horror genre, but to filmmaking in general. Um, it spawned an entire subgenre that's been rolling for decades, and it shows no signs of slowing down. Um, you know, The Exorcist was in the 70s and so then it followed with the omen and rosemary's baby and all of those and then i feel like it'll sort of die down for a while and then become popular again there were a lot of exorcism movies in the you know early 2000s to kind of 2010s um so it it, it is a subject that sort of rolls keeps rolling around from time to time and a lot of what we see with religion and horror is specifically tied to exorcism i mean that's a hot topic but there are other angles of religion to be found. Um, and one of those is what I call toxic faith. Now, why horror is often critical, and fairly so, of religion, there is a lot of positive imagery in regards to faith. And I feel in part, again, uh, that's due to the fact that faith has become such an important pillar of humanity. How and it's and it's a beautiful it's a beautiful thing an unwavering pure faith it can be a really beautiful thing. Um, however, when the concepts of religious beliefs are abused, used for manipulation, control, or even simply misunderstood, some truly horrifying things can take place, and that is both in real life and in the movies. Religion and faith are supposed to be things that enrich your life. Uh, it's not necessarily meant to make your life easier, but as I said before, it's something that helps us make sense of our world and it's a comfort. But there are times when the idea of faith is tarnished, perhaps applied incorrectly, and of course can actually be harmful. And when that happens, I think we venture into toxic faith. Um, and toxic faith is bad enough when it's harmful to yourself, but the more people it leaks out onto, the worse it is. And so that's directly applicable to Midnight Mass. Um, other examples of this would be like The Sacrament, which is based on Jonestown. Um, any number of cult movies is definitely a toxic faith thing, um, where again, something that could be beautiful and empowering to a community turns into a horror show. Before we dive more specifically into Midnight Mass, um, I want to talk about a couple of things. One, I want to talk about Mike Flanagan's work in general, and I also want to talk about the influence of Stephen King, because both of these are uh, important things to understand, I think, in order to fully appreciate Midnight Mass. 
Um, Mike Flanagan has become, I think, a minor master of horror. Um, he's done some really great things, and I think he will continue to in the genre. Um, he's clearly talented. He has injected, I think, some fresh scares into the genre, not necessarily doing new things, but doing old things really well. Um, as with The Haunting of Hill House, I mean, it was just a ghost story, but it was so well crafted and the, the characters were so great and the way the scares were crafted were so good that it just felt new. It made the ghost story feel new again. Um, his early work was fairly bleak. Um, he directed a little independent film called Absentia that I absolutely love. If you haven't seen it, you should seek it out. Um, it's about, without being too spoilery, it's basically about a haunted tunnel in the middle of a city, maybe LA. And the ending of that is not happy. It's a little ambiguous, which is my favorite. Um, also, he directed Oculus, which is about a haunted mirror. Um, I think that one was probably influenced by a Stephen King short story called The Reaper's Image, also about a haunted mirror. Um, that one also does not have a happy ending. It has kind of a bummer of an ending. And those two, to me, ended on a, gr a great note because I like an ambiguous or a dark ending, especially in horror. Um, sometimes we don't want to write the ship. You know, that's not what horror is really here for, I don't think. Saying all of that about his earlier work, um, his newer work has become, to me, a little overly, no, a lot overly sentimental. Um, as much as I loved The Haunting of Hill House, the last episode really, when I, the first time I saw it, just irritated me to no end. And I don't want to get too spoilery about that if you haven't seen it. Um, but just know that it ends on a very sweet, hopeful note. Um, not that that story couldn't have any hope. I think there's there's some hope to be had at the end of that story. It's about a family and family troubles and family coming together. And so there's room in that story for for some hope. But just the end, it just it did not feel like the rest of the show. And I will never forgive him for butchering the last line of Shirley Jackson's amazing novel. He changed it, and I was like, ah, you've just changed the meaning of the story in a way I don't like. Um, Saying that, I still love the show. It's still a 10 out of 10. I just don't love the ending. And revisiting it, um, knowing what the ending is going to be, it, it doesn't really ruin it for me anymore. But the first watch, I was just like, oh, I don't know what's happening here. Um, and to some extent, um, Midnight Mass does that a little bit, but I love the ending of Midnight Mass. And so I'll get, I'll dig into that a little more as I talk about the episodes. Another thing he directed that... Uh, was a tad had a tad more of that sentimentality to it was Dr. Sleep, which is a Stephen King novel is Stephen King's sequel to The Shining. Um, the book, that book and the movie both have gotten mixed reviews. Um, the movie did not do well critically, which made me it was kind of a bummer. I saw it and um, it's it's less of a horror movie, really. I mean, it's got some scary elements, but um, it's not really a scary movie. And the end of that movie, same way, like kind of everything is sort of like happy and sugar-coated over. It worked for that story, I think, um, because that the story is not an overly bleak story anyway. But again, you just you see that sort of like sentimentality 
seeping in. So I, um, I'm definitely excited to see what Mike Flanagan does next, but I would love it if, um, if he could get a little bit of that nastiness back from his earlier work. And I do think we see some of that in Midnight Mass. And since I'm talking about Dr. Sleep and Stephen King, um, we got to talk about the influence of Stephen King on Mike Flanagan in general. I think it really comes through in a lot of his work. Um, a lot of his work is character driven and monologue driven. And in Stephen King's novels, we get a lot of that. We get a lot of inner monologues, a lot of thoughts of characters. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to successfully adapt Stephen King's stories, because a lot of what's going on on the page uh, is difficult to convey on the screen. Um, he's got he's got a couple s- small settings or small town settings, which is right up Stephen King's alley. Uh, you get characters that are flawed and have just personal little secrets that you find out, um, which is um, that's what's best, honestly, about Stephen King's work. Um, and specifically to Midnight Mass, there are two Stephen King properties that really shine through. That's Salem's Lot and Storm of the Century. Um, by the way, you're going to get big spoilers for Salem's Lot and for Midnight Mass clearly in this episode. So just be warned. Um, but basically, Midnight Mass is the best adaptation of Salem's Lot we're going to get. Um, of course... We got a Salem's Lot miniseries in the 70s. We got one with Rob Lowe in the 2000s. And we're getting another one on the big screen, allegedly in 2024. It's filmed. It's done. It's sitting on a shelf. We're waiting for it to be released. But regardless of that, Midnight Mass is true to the spirit of Salem's Lot. And I've been saying from the beginning, this is the best Salem's Lot adaptation we're ever going to get. You've got uh, vampires in a small town. At one point, you have the entire town burning, starting from a small fire, spreading to the whole town. You have a compromised priest. Um, The kids are very scrappy, and the kids are the survivors. Um, And then Storm of the Century, which is a underrated, underseen Stephen King adaptation. It's not based on a novel or a short story. It is instead uh, an original screenplay he wrote specifically to be filmed as a miniseries. It was released in the 2000s, and I love it. Um, it is about an island in Maine, much like Crockett Island. Um, and right before a big snowstorm comes through, a stranger shows up. He brutally murders an old woman. And when the small town sheriff, kind of like Sheriff Hassan, um, comes to arrest him, he goes quietly without a fight, and he says, give me what I want and I'll go away. And that is echoed through the entire miniseries. He keeps saying, give me what I want and I'll go away. And so you're wondering, what does this man want? Um, So we have a lot of the same ingredients, of course, in Midnight Mass. I think in episode one or two, we get that storm and how the the town is kind of gathering together before this coming storm. And that very much feels like storm of the century. And then we get a very similar confrontation in... Midnight Mass and in Storm of the Century with the sheriff in town hall kind of speaking out with against the town people in this like horrible situation. Um, so those two, I just the whole time I was watching Midnight Mass, I was like, these stories are coming through really strong. So now we've come to it. It's time to talk specifically about Midnight Mass. And, um, you know, a lot of times I, I try to have my episodes really structured and my thoughts very collected 
Um, but it's it's going to be difficult for me to talk about this show because I love it so much and there is so much in it that resonates with me. It is hard for me to capture it all and to even convey how it makes me feel. Um, so I am possibly going to be a little bit all over the place in my discussion of this. Um, but I just, I, I was like, you know, I cannot put this episode off anymore. <laughs> it is Easter time again. I do not want to wait another year to do this. And um, as they say in the creative world, done is better than perfect. So uh, please bear with me. I sure, I'm sure I am going to overlook some things, but I have a lot of notes here. And so hopefully um, I'm able to convey most of it in a somewhat organized fashion. We tend to dislike mysteries. We feel uncomfortable not knowing. The more that we know, the less we bend, the more brittle we become. The easier to break. Wasn't it? It's okay to just look at the world and say why, why, why I don't understand. After serving four years in prison for a drunk driving crash that killed a young woman, Riley Flynn returns to his hometown of Crockett Island, a tiny offshore fishing village reeling economically from an oil spill which crippled its fishing industry. Having lost his faith during his incarceration, Riley struggles to reintegrate with the town's devout Catholic community, including his parents, Annie and Ed, teenage brother Warren, childhood sweetheart and expectant mother Erin Green, and zealous parishioner Bev Keen. The community is also joined by Father Paul Hill, a young priest claiming to be a temporary replacement for the aging Monsignor Pruitt, who is on pilgrimage in the Holy Land. The charismatic young priest begins to revitalize the town's flagging faith. However, the community's divisions are soon exacerbated by the priest's deeds while mysterious events befall the small town. I did not know what to expect from this show. I remember seeing a trailer. And at first, when I when I heard of Midnight Mass, I thought it was a movie. And then I saw a trailer that it was going to be on Netflix. And I thought, oh, that's a bummer. I wish it was being released in theaters, not realizing it was a series. And from the trailer, I think I saw the trailer once or twice. I try not to watch trailers for things that I want to see more than once, just to keep some of the mystique in it, especially since trailers are so spoilery these days. But I really thought it was going to be more of like a cult movie, like a dark church. Um, Did not think it was going to be vampires. And vampires also were not really my favorite subgenre. So I do not think that would have excited me in the least. Um, It was my favorite thing in 2021 in all of horror shows movies whatever it was my favorite it's possibly the most 
powerful and accurate portrayal of religion I've ever seen. And I know everyone's relationship to religion is different, but for my specific journey, it just was spot on and just continued to really hit me in a way that was very meaningful. And it walks a really delicate line between critical and sympathetic that I very much appreciate. So I talked about the influence of Stephen King and um, Salem's Lot and the Storm of the Century already, but I also appreciated a couple of the other influences that I saw. One is The Exorcist, um, and not really a lot of The Exorcist, but specifically when Father Paul is lost in the desert and um, he's in this foreign land. Reminded me a lot of Father Marin at the very beginning of The Exorcist when he's in the desert and he first encounters that statue of Pazuzu. So uh, Father Paul's encounter with the quote unquote angel really reminded me of that a lot. And it was a nice departure from uh, our little Crockett Island setting. And of course, it also reminded me of the Jonestown incident. Um, I've talked about that on this podcast before. If you are at all into true crime, you know about it already. But if you don't, um, Jonestown was the cult uh, established in Guyana, Africa by Jim Jones and the entire cult um, committed suicide by drinking poison Kool-Aid. So if you didn't know, that's where the whole phrase, uh, you know, I drank the Kool-Aid or drinking the Kool-Aid comes from. It was horrific. About a thousand people died. It was it was a whole scene. And if you've seen Midnight Mass, then you understand why that's relevant. From a critical standpoint, um, the show is really well made. I'm tempted to just only talk about the meat of the story and what it means to me, but I, I cannot move on without talking about just the critical aspects. Like I said, I think Mike Flanagan is on his way to being a master of horror if he's not already. Um, He tells a really good, simple story, which I think is very important. Um, You know, Haunting of Hill House is just one story told from the perspective of what five different siblings. You get one episode for each sibling and then the last two or three, they're all together. So it's this one little story, but told in a really granular way that helps you get the whole breadth of what's going on. And to some extent, Midnight Mass is that way. The acting is good in this show. The direction is good in this show. I absolutely love the soundtrack. Um, I love how we have this kind of moody, atmospheric horror soundtrack. But then there are these really beautiful hymns. We get both vocal hymns and then we get also just um, instrumental version of hymns. And it all weaves together really well to contribute Um, The atmosphere of the place is so well drawn. Um, They really took the time to develop the place, the history, its people, and that all pays off, especially by the time we get to just the crazy ending. I love just the worn look of everything, which I heard um, they were going to film this and then COVID hit. So they built this set and then the set just sat for however long, months, a year. And when they came back, It was all weathered, which, of course, just contributed to the feeling that this is an actual seaside town. And um, the church itself is beautiful. Um, It's just a plain white church. Uh, Even the inside is just almost like the shiplap, but not uh, HGTV shiplap, like real shiplap. And um, but it's nothing's perfect. Everything's just a little bit worn. So it's beautiful, but weathered. 
which is just a great, I think, metaphor for the entire town. A couple, just a couple criticisms, uh, since I'm going to just rave about this. Um, like I said, I think uh, it's a little overly sentimental at parts. Um, I love a good Mike Flanagan monologue. One of the criticisms I heard over and over again about this show is that there were too many monologues, and I tend to agree. Um, it didn't really bother me too much, but I think you could have cut out probably one or two of them and not lost any of the impact. Um, the old age makeup is a little bit of a giveaway also. I remember when I first watched it, I was like, why did he cast young people in these older roles? Because I recognized, of course, Henry Thomas, and I recognized um, the mother of the doctor, Alex Esso. She's very young. She's probably in her 30s. And I was like, why did he cast young people as these old people? And I thought, these people are going to become young at some point. That's what's happening, which is a little bit of a spoiler, you know. Um, but then as the story unfolds, you find out, oh, it's it's not really a spoiler. But, but the old age makeup, it would work um, more like on the page than as a visual. Also, the, uh, the Neil Diamond used in a couple of places, a little too white people for my taste. <laughs> but but um, as I already said about the music, um, it is it does provide some some kind of positive moments of of levity. So, again, I, I don't knock it too much. God in my wall. I think the thing that resonates the most with me about Midnight Mass, um, other than it just being a well-made show, is that it presents a very fair representation of organized religion and faith. I believe it is rightly critical. It uses scripture in both a stinging and a healing way. And by that, I mean, like anytime Bev opens her mouth to say anything to anybody with scripture, it's because she's trying to hurt someone or she's trying to assert her authority or she's trying to manipulate people. Um, And I think we've, if you've spent any time in a church, you have heard that you've seen that happen. Um, But also we get moments um, like when uh, Aaron towards the end when she's talking about dismantling the boats so the vampires can't get off the island, but it means she and her group are going to die. She says, it's not about us. It's about everyone else. No greater love. That's what the good book says. And then also Sheriff Hassan at the end, when there's nowhere for the vampires to go anymore, he says to Bev, you know, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible is that uh, God makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. So there's there's just, I mean, it's chocked full, chocked full of stuff like that. And um, I actually saw some, again, a lot of criticisms. When this show first came out, I saw a lot of raving about it. And I saw a lot of people basically saying it was garbage or like, it's too slow, nah, nah, nah. And one of the criticisms I saw many times was that it was too preachy. Um, and I thought, well, there... There are there is a preacher in this movie and there is a ton of scripture, but it's like really critical of religion. Like, I, you know, and then I also saw people say like, oh, well, I don't like this show because I don't believe in that. Like they're talking about religion and I'm like, 
but you watch horror and I, you probably don't believe in vampires or werewolves or supernatural serial killers, you know, <laughs> I don't think you have to believe in religion um, to enjoy this show and to understand the message. So anyway, all that to say, I appreciate the use of scripture, the very specific use of scripture in this show. Um, I love that it shows what happens when you just blindly cling to a group. Um, and of course, in this situation, it's a religious group. It's a church, but it could be any group. You know, I think it's applicable to anything that you blindly commit to and are unwilling to question, even when things have obviously gone clearly wrong. You know, there are people in the beginning, especially after Father Paul kills Joe, there are devout members of the church who challenge Bev and who are clearly uncomfortable with this. And um, Bev, again, uses scripture um, to convince them that, no, this is right. Uh, This is the way it has to be. And don't question and don't challenge. And they just fall in line with her, even though they know it's really not right. And if someone had stood up right then to Bev, things could have maybe gone differently. But because they didn't, and because the larger group didn't know what, what was happening behind closed doors, it, it was allowed to continue. And I think also in its fair representation, it shows what happens when people of true faith reject the message that has been hijacked. So we see a few examples of this. Um, In episode five, that's when things really start to go off the rails and Father Paul starts to really sound like a cult leader just right in church. It's when he gives his God's army speech. He says, first Christ was alone, then a few more, then an army. Fight for God's kingdom, God's army. It's a war. God will ask horrible things of you. God's will, while perfect, changes. Morality changes. And then he says, I believe that's when he says, we're going to do great things together. And both um, the doctor's mom, I'm sorry, I cannot remember the doctor's name, um, but both her mom and Riley's parents are, are looking real horrified in the audience. They are like, what, what are we listening to? What is happening here? Also, an important piece of this is uh, that I haven't mentioned yet is we have Sheriff Hassan and his son Ali, and they are not only not Christian, but they are practicing Muslims on this island of Catholics. And um, it again gives you this beautiful, uh, gentle, nuanced look at people of true faith and when we see the struggle, when Ali wants to go to the church and Sheriff Hassan is like, but you're not Christian. And Ali says, who decided I was Muslim? I didn't decide to be Muslim. You just told me that's what I was. And um, I've seen, you know, fellow Christian friends have that same struggle of like, well, you just brought me here when I was a kid. I never decided this is what I wanted for myself. And so that really resonates. Um, But to watch their life and how they pray together and they practice their faith in this place um, where they're the only ones that practice their faith, like that's a beautiful little slice. And it's also uh, a beautiful contrast 
to what Bev and her kind of zealots are practicing. So as I said, it just really, I think, presents a fair representation of of religion and faith. Uh, Like I said, it's critical, but it's also very fair to true believers, let's say. I think it, um, it gives you both sides of the coin and lets you decide instead of either condemning or condoning organized religion. It just gives you kind of the good, bad, and the ugly and uh, leaves it at that, which I really appreciate. And like I said, it, it really resonates with me personally and where I am, currently am in my own journey. And I was trying to decide uh, how to phrase that. And I think um, what the show is and how I feel about religion, it's highly skeptical, but not willing to give up. <laughs> um and I think that that is really reflected in the in the end of the show, in the very last episode, because this horrible thing has happened. The priest who is supposed to be the leader, uh, the shepherd, the caregiver to his flock has brought this deadly thing onto the island and it has really revealed the flaws in these people and what they are willing to do to each other. And we've just seen horrible, horrible things. But in the end, uh, when they all know they're going to die, there are some very, very clear lines drawn. We have what I call the true versus the corrupt. Um, We see Father Paul discard his collar um, and end with his beloved and his child. Um, Bev is trying to burrow into the sand. She dies like a coward. Um, We see um, Sheriff Hassan and Ali are praying, um, even though, again, in the face of death. And the people are singing. And the the people are singing. It's the congregation. It's both the ones that were deceived and the ones that were not deceived. They're all together and they're singing a hymn. And they're all facing death together. So in the end, I think everything kind of wraps up the way it should. And we do see that many people have, even though things have gone horribly wrong, uh, even though they've witnessed many horrors, they've witnessed betrayal, they've witnessed death, they've witnessed destruction, um, and they're at the end of their life, but they have chosen to meet the end with bravery and with grace and to end it together Uh, and that to me is just so beautiful so those are kind of the overarching larger themes that really resonate with me but I want to talk a little bit um, specifically about moments that really stood out to me and um, these moments add up to the larger things that I loved about the show I don't have notes about every single episode, but I have quite a few that span the whole series. Um, episode three is uh, Proverbs and episode episode one and two are just kind of, you know, a build up. You're getting to know the town and the people in it. You don't really know what's going on. Nothing real crazy has happened yet. But in episode three is when Father Paul goes into the confessional and we find out what is really going on here. He's praying 
to God confessing, basically uh, saying, I have to lie to my congregation for this greater good. He's speaking about the Monsignor, and we don't realize it's him at first. Um, But he calls the Monsignor a man who overstayed his time on this earth. He says, as adults, we tend to dislike mysteries. We feel uncomfortable not knowing. And I think that's very true of, um, of humanity. And honestly, that's, that's what faith is. Uh, faith is just believing whether you've seen evidence or not. In this time in the confessional, um, when Father Paul is talking, we also, this is where we learn about the, again, quote unquote, angel. That is, as we know, the vampire. And um, he and Father Paul is just so mixed up. Um, and I thought this was a really fresh take on a vampire story because, because just because of the way that's so, that's such an, an intricately beautiful little mix up. Um, and how he, he says it time and time again, every time somebody sees an angel in the Bible, they're afraid. It's always fear not, don't be afraid. And so he uses that to prop up the fact that this monster is actually an angel from God. And I wonder about the specifics of that. I wonder if he's confused about the angel because of his dementia, or is he just being naive and just grasping to anything? And I don't think there's an answer there, but I think it's an interesting question to contemplate. He has a quote about having to lie to the very people I have to save. And I think this is, again, just this is a crux of the story. I think if you have to lie in order to protect your faith, I mean, that's a problem. People have to be able to make their own decisions and make those decisions from an honest place. Uh, Honesty, to me, is one of the most important things in faith. Because if you're coerced or manipulated, then it's not real. Um, And I think that that is a fatal flaw for Father Paul. As much as I love him, I will say this. Hamish Linklater as Father Paul. I love him. Like there's part of me that's like, oh, I wish he was my pastor or my priest. Like I just love Father Paul. Um, But he is so woefully misguided. And um, the fact that his intentions are good do not matter. And that, again, is another linchpin of the story. Um, Because we see him start out as very kind, very understanding. He's very accepting of Riley and of Joe, these addicts who just need somebody to listen and somebody to help them. And he doesn't care that Riley doesn't believe in God. And, um, you know, he just seems like such a good guy. And then in episode three, when we find out what's happening here, it's just it's very conflicting because we want to like Father Paul. But my goodness, he has brought a vampire to this community and he thinks it's an angel of God. And he thinks that it's going to help these people that he loves. And he's really brought death to the people that he loves. Another scene we get in episode three that I think is really important is um, just the discussion between Sheriff Hassan and Ali. And it's when Ali is wanting to go to the church. And um, he specifically wants to go because of the miracle, because of Lisa's miracle. She was in a wheelchair and now she can walk again. And Sheriff Hassan is trying to convince him that this wasn't a miracle from God. It's just a medical anomaly. Um, 
And he says, that's not how it works. No matter how exciting the stories are, it's not magic. And that line really resonated with me, especially being from a, you know, Pentecostal charismatic tradition. It is a lot about the show. Like I said, the speaking in tongues, people being healed, laying on of hands is a lot of hype. It's a lot of hyped up, you know, stuff about things you see with your eyes uh, and less about just the quiet, slow work of God over the years, you know. But I believe that a steadfast faith is what's going to win out in the long run, not the charismatic, hyped up, big, showy stuff. And so uh, when Sheriff Hassan says it's not magic, that really resonated with me. Moving on to episode four. Um, episode four is a, is kind of another transition episode, kind of how one and two are for me. Um, but episode four is when we really see Bev like doubling down after Father Paul has killed Joe, which is such it's a sad moment, but also it's one of the more terrifying moments in this show when we see him like drinking blood out of Joe's head, like, oh, oh my gosh. Um, And Bev sees this horrible thing and doesn't even skip a beat. She just, this is God's plan. It's fine. (laughs) Um, And she even quotes a scripture again and says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And you're like, oh, Bev. I mean, Bev is bad news from the beginning, uh, and it's just kind of delightful to watch her continue to go down this this villainous road. I mean, we hate her, but we love to hate her. So episode five, to me, is probably the most important episode of this show. Uh, it's really the turning point, and there are just, I feel like, almost every line in this episode is great, especially when Father Paul and Riley are having their conversation, their their little AA conversation. Um, I mean, almost every line they say, I'm like, oh, this is good stuff. But it's also the episode where Father Paul really starts to sound, like I said, like a cult leader. I mean, this is when we realize that, oh, Father Paul is, he's not a good guy. Still, still believes he's doing the right thing, still has good intentions, but not good. It's also when we get kind of his philosophy on what is happening uh, with this blood drinking and this vampire transformation and how he is just very blind to it. Um, He says, God still has a plan and death isn't a part of it anymore. So we know he's like all in on turning the whole town. He tells the story about uh, the mouse, about Riley's little mouse and how he basically tricked Riley into thinking his little mouse was healed when really he had gotten rid of the dead mouse and he found another mouse that looked like it. So we see that he's been kind of a fraud before for like the greater good of the faith. I mean, we're really getting down to like the real ugliness. He says that he um, doesn't feel guilty for killing Joe, so it must be holy. He's saying it's he doesn't feel guilty about killing Joe because the Holy Spirit is working through him. Um, he calls himself a murderer, maybe, but so was Moses. He also gives the monologue about being afraid of angels. Be, be not afraid if you're not, as I mentioned earlier. 
And as I also mentioned earlier, you know, the angel being scary, but sent by God is like a crucial and beautiful misunderstanding in this story. It's almost like a Shakespearean tragedy, um, how those messed up stories are just heartbreaking, but beautiful. This is that same kind of thread, this misunderstanding with the angel. Um, And there's also talk of communion, the eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. And of course, Catholics believe that is literal. And so that is very important to this story. Also in episode five is when we get the boat scene with Riley and Aaron. And I haven't even talked about their relationship. Um, Their relationship is is again so beautiful because they kind of started in the same place. Um, They both had difficult times. Uh, You know, Aaron was in an abusive relationship. Riley went to prison. Now they're back together, um, back together in the same place. And, you know, they've, they've both had a rough go of it, but they've had a different result. Um, Aaron has decided that she has, has faith in God and Riley has decided I don't believe in God. Um, but they they give each other space for that. Their conversations are very honest and, um, you know, unyielding in what they believe. Um, but they make space for each other and their friends. And it's really a beautiful dynamic. Um, and, of course, they have their, uh, their dialogue about what happens when we die. And they each have a different take on that. Um, and of course that, that comes in, that comes in, in, um, in, in both of spoiler alert, they both die. Um, and so those conversations, uh, have further resonance. And so episode five is when we basically watch Riley sacrifice himself, um, rather than to take part in this abomination that's going on. And so that's a very powerful moment. Um, episode six there's not, I don't have any, uh, any specific like quotes, uh, or notes on episode six. Um, episode six is when all hell breaks loose. <laughs> um, it's when we see the scene of everyone drinking the poison so they can be resurrected. It's carnage. It's horrific. It's beautiful. Um, it's when we see Sheriff Hassan begging his son not to drink the poison, and he does, and like that is heartbreaking. Um, his character is just great, by the way. Like he he's one of my favorite characters in the show. It's just from top to bottom, and his perspective is is really important, I think, to grounding the show and the characters. Um, I mean, I love the carnage in this episode. The whole show has been fairly restrained. Um, until we get to this episode. And I think it really pays off um, that we've seen little hints here and there. We've seen a couple of scary things. But man, when it just lets loose and everyone turns into vampires in this episode, oh, it's fantastic. So then we move on to episode seven, which is the last episode. And I've already talked about the last episode a little bit, but it's just sort of the wrap up. Episode six is really like, to me, almost the climax. And then episode seven is just wrapping that up. I love, love when Bev has decided she's going to burn the whole town down. And um, Aaron and her tiny little group that haven't been turned into vampires yet are holed up in her house. Um, Riley's mom goes out to speak to Bev as a distraction so the rest can get away, but also just because she wants to. 
and she goes to Bev and she just says, and she and this she's a, such a sweet woman. She's just a quintessential mom that wants to like believe the best in everyone and like give everyone a break. So when she goes to Bev and she says, you aren't a good person. I mean, it's just the greatest moment. Um, and also her little her little speech here is is again speaks, I think, to the crux of the whole show. And she says, you know, God doesn't love you more than anyone else. And I believe she says something like, why, like, why does that bother you so much that God doesn't love you more than anyone else? And Bev says that, you know, her son is a drunk and a murderer. And she basically says, yes, he is. And God loves him as much as he loves you. <laughs> um, that's just uh, that's a real rah-rah moment for me personally, Bev getting put in her place. And there are more beautiful moments in which the wrongs are made right. Um, when Lisa and, uh, I can't remember his name, Riley's brother, you know, they're trying to hide from the vampires. They're trying to get off the island. And there's a point when he looks at Lisa and he says, do you think we're going to make it? And she says, either way, we're going to be okay. And, um, you know, Lisa has proven to be, she's one of those true people of faith through the whole show. She... She consistently goes to mass. She's committed. She she believes. She's a true believer. When she has her miracle, of course, she's elated. But then when things start going sideways, she won't drink the blood. She won't partake. Like, she knows this is not the way. And so the fact that in the end, she knows, she's basically saying, whether we live, whether we die, we're going to be okay. She has that faith. That's a beautiful moment. There's also a time when um, after, well, let me say this. So, one of the things I don't like about the end is um, Father Paul doesn't quite have the end um, that I would want for him. Because as I said, I love his character, but he's responsible for this entire thing. Of course, we see who these people truly are because of this, but he he brought this on the people. He unknowingly gave them this tainted blood that turned them into these monsters. And he never really atones for that. Um, you know, when we find out that he had an affair with the doctor's mom um, and that the doctor is actually his daughter, like, that's fine. Like, I think that's an interesting layer to him that he was in love with this woman and he couldn't be with her because of the he was a priest. That's all fine. But when he says, oh, I really did this for you because I didn't want you to die, like that sort of shifted the whole meaning for me and wasn't didn't quite resonate with the rest of the show. It's a small thing, um, but I didn't love that. And because so he's with his daughter in the love of his life at the end, he's with them. And that's beautiful. And I think him taking his collar off is, is kind of a representation of that. But because it's focused on that relationship he never like apologizes. Like he never really atones for his part in this horror. He now he does reject like he does reject Bev. Bev comes to him and is says he needs, you know, these people need a leader. It's 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 you. It's always been you. It has to be you. And he says, it's not supposed to be about me. It's supposed to be about God. So in that moment, you know, he he realizes this is wrong and he's turning away from it. But I think, you know, 
the townspeople deserved an apology. Like I, I wanted him to have some big speech where he basically, you know, says I was misled and I'm responsible and I'm sorry. And he never does that. Um, so that really bothered me. So even though the, the moment with his family and the very end with his family is beautiful, I'm just like, these people deserve more from this man. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe even that in itself is a statement. I don't know. And so, as I've mentioned earlier, the more modern work of Mike Flanagan is pretty sentimental. And and we get that here. But the fact that, you know, it's sentimental and that people, people apologize to each other, people realize what they've done is wrong. Um, they decide to band together and face the sunrise together. You know, that is very beautiful and sentimental, but they all die, um, which to me is the proper ending. Um, only two people make it off and their children, which I think is also fitting. So it's kind of the perfect ending in that it is it is bleak because everyone dies. Um, but you do have but you do have this sense that this wasn't just all for nothing. And also, I mean, you know that this is kind of a dying town from the very beginning. Um, just because the modern world is moving on and because they're a fishing village and there was an oil spill so people couldn't make a living and they left. So this town has been crumbling for a long time. And this is like the last straw, of course, it's the last gasp. But even though this horrible thing has happened, these people have decided to band together and face the end together. And I really love that. I do really love that. Uh, and the uh, the ash falling down on Lisa uh, and her friend at the end. I, I really should have written down names before I did this, and I didn't. So there are some crucial names I'm forgetting, but oh well. I told you this one was going to be a little messy. So anyway, there it is. That's how I feel about Midnight Mass. Um, it's just a beautiful story from beginning to end. Um, I love the pacing of it. I love how the vampires introduced, the concept is introduced. I love that we have um, a conflicted main character in Father Paul. I love that we have um, a really, really terrible villain in Bev. Um, I love how we have compromised characters like Riley and Joe and even Aaron to a certain extent. This is a place I, I remember thinking, watching it, like, this is a place I want to go spend some time. I want to go spend some time on Crockett Island in the Crockpot. Um, maybe before uh, Father Paul shows up with his trunk. But, you know, it's just it's just really um, a place I want to be. <laughs> and I think that's that's the sign of really successful filmmaking. So um, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion today. Um, I hope it gives you some things to think about during this Easter season. And um, I would love to know your thoughts on Midnight Mass. Like I said, there's there's too much in here for me to even um, convey in just one episode of a podcast. It, it means more to me that I think I can say with words. And it's something I will continue to reflect upon. And I will probably watch it every year uh, at Easter time. So um, I often like to leave you with recommendations for other media that you can consume. If you like this sort of thing, 
I've already mentioned Salem's Lot and Storm of the Century. If you like Midnight Mass and you don't know those stories, you absolutely need to seek them out. And I would recommend reading Salem's Lot. You can watch the adaptation, but the book is just the best and the most parallel to Midnight Mass. So I would recommend reading the book in the fall and then watching Storm of the Century in the winter because it's a snow story. So those two are very, um, very seasonal and very tied to the season. So you can watch Midnight Mass in Easter. You've got Salem's Lot in the fall. You've got Storm of the Century in the winter. And you have a whole theme for the whole year. Um, also, if you like this sort of cynical, critical, religious type of story, I would recommend the work of Flannery O'Connor. She is a Southern Gothic author. She is a person of faith herself. She was Catholic. She was very devoted, but very skeptical, like I said about myself. Highly skeptical, but unwilling to give up. Her work is uh, it's, it's darkly funny. Um like I said, Southern, critical of religion. It's just, especially if you like any kind of classic literature um, or Southern Gothic, you got to check out Flannery O'Connor. So thanks for joining me today. I hope you all have a wonderful Easter. And until next time, stay spooky. Spooky.